What is true and what is false? Can we know the truth? And if so, how can we know if something is false, that something or someone is a lie? You'll be reminded that our Lord and Savior, when He was before Pilate, Pilate asked them the question, what is truth? That's a question that many in our day wrestle with. What is true? Can truth be known? Can we know what is true and what is false? Or is truth just relative? It's just whatever I make it to be or what I understand to be true is true. What tools do we use to ascertain whether information is factual or fake? Certainly in our day, much has been made about fake news. Information that is distorted and twisted to serve a a certain end. Motivation often behind those lies are are self-serving. Sought to advance one's own beliefs and agenda over and against someone else's. But as Christians, should we be concerned about the truth? Should we be concerned about what is true and what is false? Does the Christian faith say anything about truth? If truth can be known and believed, then where do we find this truth? Where do we find what is true? How do we know? How do we grab it? How do we hold it? Can we be certain? Can we be certain that what we have and what we know is true? That the information that we have received is in fact the truth? What is true and what is false? Friends, that's what we're going to think about over the next few weeks. Uh, The letter of 2 Peter is really taken up with that task of of truth versus false. What is real and what is fake. Peter's writing to a people that are confused about the truth. They're confused about what is right and what is wrong. Now you'll be reminded that over the last... uh, few months, we've really spent some time through 1 Peter. We've walked slowly through that, sought to understand. One of the things we saw in that letter was a congregation that Peter was writing to that was faced with persecution. You'll remember they were faced with persecution and trial from outside of the church. There was those seeking to do harm to them. Uh, We know from 1 Peter that they were living somewhere in what is today modern-day Turkey for us, what we understand to be then in the Bible, Asia Minor. Places like Bithynia. And so Peter's writing, uh, the apostles writing to these churches, trying to encourage them to persevere through trial. And he takes up this second letter, which we won't have time to really look at, but there's much debate over who wrote this letter and and so on. Um, I take it to be that the apostle Peter wrote it because he says that he wrote it. And, And there's several cases where he refers to his first letter. But here in this letter, Peter is not is writing to the same people we would understand. I, I think that would be wise to understand that Peter's writing to the same group. Because in chapter 3 and verse 1, he writes, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. And so he's writing to the same group of congregations spread across modern-day Turkey. And he's writing them this time to encourage them, not from, not from outside persecution, but from opposition from within. Trials from within. They were faced with the opposition from false teachers. 
there had been apparently some false teachers that had grown up in the life of the congregation and began to turn the congregation away from the truth. There's a few things that they lied about, that they distorted. One was the second coming of Christ. And so in a few weeks, for many of you that love to talk about end times, well, you're finally going to get to hear some sermons on that. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that in chapter 3. Um, but we're going to see also uh, that there was this confusion about holiness. There was a licentious lifestyle among these false teachers, a, a kind of antinomian flair. What that means is they were anti-law. And sadly, in our day and age, there's many Christians that often talk that way, that the law is Old Testament. We don't need to worry about following rules. We, we have liberty and freedom, and so it really doesn't matter how we live. And so we're going to consider, is there a place for, for the law and the life of God's people? There seemed to be also a confusion about holiness, particularly the holiness of God. Is there a place for growing in holiness in the Christian life? Furthermore, we see that these false teachers also denied the second coming and the judgment. Uh, they particularly struggled with understanding and, and taught lies about the future judgment that Christ would have. And so chapter 2 is really taken up with the task of, of reminding God's people that there is a judge who is coming to judge those who sin. And so Peter takes up the task to clarify the truth. To, to clarify what is true and what is false by encouraging them to persevere. To persevere against these false teachers. And so have that in the back of your mind as we read this morning, as we study this letter, as Peter seeks to clarify what is true and what is false. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Second Peter. We're going to consider verses 1 and 2 this morning. And we will not go that slow throughout this whole letter. Uh, we will only spend a few weeks here. But, uh, but this first uh, day, we want to spend just, just some time getting ourselves oriented around this letter. Second Peter in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Christians, Peter writes, can be certain that they have obtained faith because they have received it through the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is our God, Savior, and Lord. This is what we want to think about this morning and to remind you as Christians this morning of the certainty of your faith. The certainty that you can be certain today that you are saved. Be certain today that if you were to die today and stand before God, that you are in fact saved. And so like most first century letters, Peter opens with a greeting. He says, hello, uh, like you and I often do, if you still do, we type out an email, we say, hi, so-and-so, or dear, so-and-so. If we you know, do the old school stuff, you can actually get a pen and paper out and write a letter. We, we begin by saying, dear, so-and-so, and at the end we put, sincerely, Mr. Smith, or sincerely, Mrs. Smith. In the first century, uh, they did things a little differently. They would begin with that salutation, that sincerely. They would begin with, hi, this is so-and-so, writing to so-and-so about this. 
It was this sort of formal way in which Greeks wrote letters, in which this time period they wrote letters, and and Peter really follows that customary sort of practice. So does the Apostle Paul, and so do the other New Testament writers. And so, remember, this is a letter written to a congregation. A literal letter, not just some fake thing, not some metaphysical thing. It was a, it was a literal letter. It was written down on some form of, of parchment or paper. It was, it was scrolled out. It was, it was written down and it was couriered. It was delivered to a congregation. And the elders of that congregation would unroll it, stand before the congregation and read it. And they would read it as if it had come from the mouth of God. Not from a mere apostle, but from God Himself. And so Peter follows this sort of customary thing by opening with a greeting from the author, an address to the audience, and an appeal to the occasion for the letter. Well, this outline will serve sort of as our outline this morning. So if you're taking notes this morning, we really have three points. Uh, First, the author. Secondly, the audience. And then thirdly, the occasion. Why is this letter written? What is it that Peter is going to take up and talk about in the letter? First, the author. Peter identifies himself as Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He uses two names and two titles. Two names and two titles. Two names, Simon Peter. Don't you wish he had two names? I mean, it's really quite often. We know that Simon was his, his birth name, the one that he was given at his circumcision, the one that he would have received seven days after his birth. Simon, Simon Simon, son of Bar-Jonah. Simon was his name. The the name that he used as he grew up, the name that he would write down in school, the name that, that he went by was Simon. But if you'll remember when the Lord Jesus called Simon, he called him a new name. He gave him a new identity. He was no longer Simon's son of Bar-Jonah, but he was now Peter, the rock. The, the rock. There's reason why we sang a lot about rocks this morning. Not because we were singing about Peter, but because we were singing about the confession that Peter made. The rock was the confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Simon Peter is writing this letter, and notice he identifies himself in two ways, as a servant and an apostle of Jesus. Simon was a slave who served Jesus Christ. And note here the humility of Peter, how he sees himself and how he sees his role within the Christian faith. For some of our former Catholics, you might want to meditate a bit more on this and how Peter addresses and thinks about himself. Again, he never thought of himself to be a vicar. He never thought of himself to be higher or more esteemed than any other. Peter thought of himself as a slave. This is how most uh, servants of God spoke in the Old Testament, as ones who served God. Abraham was a servant of God. David was a servant of the Lord. Uh, Men of old were servants And this idea here, and you'll see the footnote there, is the idea of slave. We kind of try to take off some of the edges of that word. But but the idea here isn't of subservience. Isn't that, you know, Jesus is some bad taskmaster and, you know, Simon's have to do his bidding. But rather he sees himself as a willing bondservant of the Lord. One who is bonded to his Savior. One who serves only Christ Jesus. So he writes to remind them. I'm a servant. I'm a servant who serves the Lord. But more than that, he writes that he is an apostle sent with authority by Jesus Christ. Not only is he a servant serving Jesus, but he is an apostle sent by Jesus. 
The word itself, apostle, means sent one. A disciple is a follower. An apostle is someone who is a representative of someone else. Like we send ambassadors across the world to represent us for foreign exchanges and diplomatic work. We send diplomats, a representative of another. An apostle was a representative of Jesus Christ. It was an official role within the life of God's people as the church began to grow. And these apostles, there were 12 of them. Originally 11, well 12, one, one was a messed up guy and he, he fell away. He was never truly saved. And they called a, another one to replace him. And so there was 12 men given authority to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. Given the authority of Christ to to go out into the world and to share the gospel. There are no longer apostles today. They died in the first century. When the apostle John died, he was the last, tradition says, when he died, the apostolic order died along with him. All we have left is the apostles' teaching. That's what we're reading about today. This is the authoritative word of God because it comes from an authoritative person. Simon Peter. And Simon Peter is writing this letter as if Jesus himself, as if Jesus of Nazareth had penned this letter. That's the kind of weight and authority that this letter comes with. And so Simon Peter begins by reminding the church, reminding the church of who he serves and of the authority that he brings. So what encouragement can we bring from this? I know often when we read this, we're just like, okay, Simon wrote it, good, good, good to know. Oh, but there's something encouraging here, isn't there? There's something rich here. There's something, something in which you and I can be encouraged by this morning. Friend, remember who Peter was. Simon the fisherman. He's an ordinary guy. Nothing spectacular about him. He seemed to have a good education. From a wealthy family, maybe. But nonetheless, just an ordinary guy. He wasn't anyone special. He wasn't someone that, you know, sort of was groomed to be a representative of our Lord. He was undeserving to be even called a servant of the Lord. We know the story well about Peter, don't we? Peter, the one who was giving that great confession about Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what's Jesus do? He doesn't come and say like, yeah, man, awesome, I love you. You are the man, you are the best guy. What does he say? You're Satan. You're Satan. You're Satan. Because you see, in Peter's confession, even then Peter was confused about what Jesus was going to do. It was upon the lips of Peter he he professed this glorious truth about Jesus and then in a moment began to, to make Jesus into whom he wanted Jesus to be. We know that many years later after Peter's great confession, around that fire, there as our Lord was being tried, that Peter betrayed Jesus not one time, but three times to a servant girl. Peter was a sinner in need of, of grace, wasn't he? Yet God in his kindness called Peter, 
Doesn't this reflect the care and compassion of our Savior? Do you find encouragement to know that God does not enroll into His kingdom the best of the world? But the despised and the lowly, the outcast? Do you find encouragement to know that God isn't out looking for the trumps of the world? But sinners like you and I, called by grace, isn't called the wise of the world, isn't called the ones who are perfect, the ones that you know have the right degrees and the and the right resume. That man, when you see that resume, you just that guy's got it going on. That gal's got it going on. No, God calls those who are weak and wounded who are sick and sore. God calls only sinners to serve Him. Peter was an ordinary fisherman called by Jesus Christ to serve Him and was sent with His his authority to preach the good news of Christ. Well, this is the, the writer. This is who's writing this letter, and hopefully that's encouraging to you. Now let's look secondly at the audience. Look secondly at the audience, those who can be certain their faith will save In verse 1, he writes, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Much can be said about this, and much will be said here in a moment. But friend, I just encourage you to meditate on that. To those who have obtained a faith. To those. It's so generic, it almost begs like, well, who is he writing to? He's writing to you. To those who've obtained a faith. He's writing this letter to you. Yes, there is a literal specific group that received this letter in the first century. But friends, know the truth has been carried from generation to generation over 2,000 years. And it's come to you this morning. This letter to you, to those who have obtained a faith. Peter writing to this beleaguered congregation. The people inflicted severely by false teaching. They didn't know what was up and what was down. They didn't know what was right and what was fake. Kind of like going on Facebook. You just don't know what's really true on there anymore. You know? They're asking themselves, will we make it through this? How can we know if our elders are teaching? How can we know if that pastor up there is preaching the truth? How can we know that our Sunday school teachers aren't leading us astray? How do we know the truth? Friend, if you're confused about the truth, surely you're going to be uncertain of your salvation. If you're wrestling with whether or not this is true, well, certainly it's going to follow. You're going to be wrestling whether or not I'm actually saved. We can see that in their own hearts, that they were struggling. They were wondering, I'm just not sure anymore. I'm just not sure if this is worth this anymore. I'm just not sure anymore. Should I continue? It was to those and to us that Peter writes to encourage and strengthen by way of reminder. See, what Peter's going to do in this letter, he's not going to tell us anything new. It's so so amazing that the gospel writers never tell us anything new. But they remind us remind us of the truth of Scripture. They remind us what was always true. They remind us of those things and encourage us by that. 
Verse 12, Peter writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. Friends, this congregation spent over a year and a half studying exactly what he's talking about here. We spent a year and a half going through the Gospel of Mark, a a gospel that was prepared by Mark at at the work of Peter to serve the church, to remind the church of the truths that we have, to remind ourselves of the teachings of Christ. And so here in verse 1 again, we see really three things that encourage us, three ways that we can be certain. You can be certain of your faith because like everyone who is saved, it was given to you by God. Notice what he writes, to those who have obtained a faith. Obtained. The language that Peter employs here is that of casting lots. Uh, that is that this isn't something that they sought out. This wasn't something that they, through their effort and merit, earned. We can obtain a degree by doing the coursework. We can obtain uh, a new job by doing certain things. And, but the idea that Peter has here isn't that, that one has obtained something because they've earned it, but rather it's something that they received. It's something that they received by Christ, by God. A gift given, not something earned. And notice what he writes. He says, have obtained. It's, it's a have obtained, not, not a will obtain, not a may obtain. You know, if things work out, it, you'll get this faith. You know, if you do the right things, you say the right prayers, you, you, you make the right confessions, you sign up on a card somewhere. He says you have obtained it. It's yours. It's a present reality. It's yours to keep, unmerited, undeserved. This faith has forever been obtained by the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ. Just think about what he's saying here. This faith has been obtained. No one can take it from you. What makes this all the more glorious is how we have come to obtain this faith, isn't it? See, often we wrongly think that faith is something we do. But see, that is a lie that, that that was started early in the church. Pelagius taught this this crazy thing, and and Augustine had to straighten him out uh, because he taught that we cooperate with God in salvation. That somehow our faith, we we work with God, we come to God, we we like we do our part, God does His part. Uh, but friends, since since the early church, that that heresy has been set aside. But but we seem to pick that up and we carry it around with us. We think in some sort of semi-Pelagian view that we kind of make a first step towards God and then God comes and saves us. It was really the revivalism of the of the 18th, 19th, and, and the craziness that happened in the 20th century where we, we got off track and got confused about the faith we have as a gift given by God, not something that merits righteousness. Because if the faith you have is something that you're generating in and of itself, then you're not saved by grace but by works. 
If your faith is something that you do, that you work up enough effort, you work up enough you know, nerves, and you really grab a hold of that pew and say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Friend, know that all of that was brought to you by the Spirit of God. Ability to believe comes after regeneration. One cannot believe in the gospel. One cannot trust in Christ because of the sin nature. We will all the time, every day, choose sin over our Savior because our hearts are broken and we need new hearts. And the Lord Jesus promised that He will give new hearts. This is what's so beautiful in the doctrine of election that we'll consider next week. That God calls sinners, those whom He will save, will be saved. Well, this is what the 1689 London Baptist Confession makes clear. This faith, although it be different in degrees and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it different in the kind of nature of it. As is all other saving grace from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. And therefore, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory, growing up in many to attain of, to the attainment of full assurance through Christ, listen, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Paul says it this way, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Who began the good work? You? Through walking aisles and raising hands and praying prayers? No, God began a good work in you. God began a good work from eternity past to save sinners by grace. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, we can be certain this morning that we have obtained it because we did not obtain it of our own merit. We did not obtain it of our own works. We did not obtain it by our own ingenuity. We obtained it because God gave it to us. Notice also here that he describes this faith of equal standing with ours. There are no varying degrees to those whom are saved. There are not here this morning sinners saved by grace, more saved than other sinners. Everyone is equally saved this morning in Christ. Those who've called upon Christ, those who've turned from a life of sin and trusted Him, they are of equal standing. There's no substandard Christians. This glorious. Peter says, your faith is the same as mine. Your faith is the same as mine. We often wrongly idolize the apostles. We often prop up, man, Paul was was a righteous man. He was a holy man. He was amazing. But friends, he was a sinner. Peter was a sinner in need of a Savior just as much as we need. Friends, there is no hierarchy within the Christian faith. The pastors are not more holy uh, than the ordinary Christian. Man, we are just as jacked up as you are. We need Jesus just as much as you do. Peter was not greater than anyone else, nor were any of the apostles. They were all alike. And so are you this morning. Everyone in this room is alike. 
Everyone in this room, friend, let me remind you this morning, there is no sin, no sin so great that it keeps you from the grace of God today. Today, salvation's by grace. It's not by merit. It's not because you do some good things. That's what we sang about earlier. That's what we sang about earlier. Come, you sinners, poor and needy. If you wait till you're better, what does he say? You will never come at all. For a minute, maybe you today. You know, I got some things I need to get straight in my life first. I got to, you know, kick some bad habits and then then I'll come to Jesus. That song is true. If you wait, you'll never come at all. There is never a better opportunity than now to trust in Christ. Today, not by works, not by popularity, not because something in us. Today, we are equal with the apostles. You can be certain of your faith because it was achieved through Christ's righteousness, Peter writes. You can be certain of your faith because God gave it to you. And secondly, you can be certain of your faith because it is by the righteousness of another. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, notice, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, or through the righteousness, the the instrument that God used was Christ. Peter here is writing about that saving righteousness of Christ that we thought about all the way back in October when we went through the five solas of the Reformation. That we are saved by grace through the perfect life of Christ. Where we disobey God, He perfectly obeyed His Father. Where we fail and mess up and and really mess up bad some days, He was steadfast and perfect. He never had a bad day. He never had an ill thought or a passing word of discouragement. Where we deserve death for our sin, He died in our place. This is what theologians call the imputation of Christ. That we have been imputed the righteousness of Christ. You might think, I don't even know what that word means. Here's what it is. You are sinful. You are broken. And you are vile. But you have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that when the Father in heaven sees you, he sees the perfect, righteous life of Jesus. Every moment Jesus willingly obeyed his Father. Every moment Jesus was, was on his knees rising early in the morning, well before the sun came up, praying to his Father. That is what the Father sees in your life. So when you struggle and hit snooze on the alarm 20 times and you're wrestling to read your Bible in the morning, you can be reminded I am saved not because I read my Bible this morning, but because Jesus got up early in the morning and He read His. I am saved by the righteousness of Christ. His perfect life for ours. This is what Paul writes in Romans 1.17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Brothers and sisters, isn't it encouraging to know 
Isn't it encouraging to know that you are righteous this morning? That you are saved by faith and not, not the faith of your own, but through that perfect faith of Christ, the faith that Christ... Look to the way Jesus obeyed His Father. That's how the Father sees you today. Look at how Jesus stands up against Satan and against his temptations. Look to Christ and there you will see the faith that you have received. The way Jesus obeyed is the way the Father sees your obedience today. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon on this text, says this, Sanctification means that not only am I guiltless in a legal sense, but that I have the precious promise of this gospel, that the Holy Spirit is, in work, is at work in me, that which will ultimately rid me of every spot and blemish and of all pollution, not merely that I am forgiven and remain the same man, but that I receive a new nature. Friend, you can be certain today, if you trust in Christ, you can be certain that that faith will save we see also here you can be certain of your faith because Jesus is both God and Savior. Look with me again at 2 Peter in verse 1. You probably missed it, and maybe so. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of who? Of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the construction in the original language here isn't that Peter is referring to two different people, God and Jesus Christ, but he's referring to one and the same. He's describing Jesus Christ as our God and Savior. Peter makes some of the, that, that great statement that he made at his confession, right? Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here he refers to Christ as both God and Savior. In verse 11, he does the same, but notice what he does in verse 11. He changes it, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here he ascribes the title Lord and Savior. Friend, you don't really have to read your Bible long to know that the, that word Lord is, is special. In the Shema, which was, is something that the, the ancient Israelites would repeat every day, and particularly on the Sabbath, the Shema. Our Lord is one. Our Lord, Yahweh, is one. Our Lord. And, and here, the Apostle Peter, along with the other apostles, take that word Lord, which every Jew in his right mind would have known was ascribed to one Lord, and he applies it to Jesus of Nazareth. Now we know, if you read your Bibles, that, that God is not a fan of other gods. God's mission in life is to destroy all other gods. Is it, is it not? That's what he's doing in the Old Testament. He's showing the Israelites, I am the Lord your God. You shall only have one God. And I will annihilate any God that, that stands against me. And so wouldn't you think that the New Testament writers would know that about God? That he doesn't share his throne with anyone? And when they begin to prop Jesus up as Lord... That they are committing blasphemy? No. 
No, Jesus is God. And Peter makes that statement clear, doesn't he? Perhaps the next time your Jehovah's Witness friends come by, you can look at 2 Peter with them a little bit more. But Paul makes the same claim. I think Titus offers one of the best letters in all of the New Testament for the deity of Christ, that is, that Christ is fully God. For the grace of God has appeared, Paul writes, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The New Testament knows Jesus to be fully God and fully man. Perhaps no greater passage in all of the Bible that points to the, to the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is both fully man and fully God, is Colossians 2.9. For in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Brothers and sisters, we can be encouraged this morning because our faith is based on the righteousness of God. Our salvation is, is not by some demigod, some small god, little g-god, but by the God. The eternal God. That is whom we trust in today through Jesus Christ our Savior. As we read earlier in our statement of faith, He is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is affected the reconciliation between God and man. Peter is addressing a congregation like ours. In a day like ours, confused about the truth, confused about what is right, plagued with false ideas about God, about holiness, and about the timing of the Lord's return. If you just consider those three things, about holiness and judgment, and about the timing of, of Christ's return, well, friend, we can see that false teaching every day. There's a few channels on your, on your cable network there that will, I'll point you to. And there you can hear it for yourself, the lies we can even see it in our own hearts, and, and we want to spend time, be reminded of the truth, to help break, if you will, in our own minds, these false ideas about who God is and about who we are. We need to be reminded, we need to be reoriented, we need to be tuned up, if you will, on who God is, and therefore who we are. And so Peter writes the occasion in verse 2, and this will be a quick point, very quickly, Number three, the occasion, growing in the true knowledge of God. How, is, how, how do you fight what is false? How, how do you combat against false teaching? How, how do you correct yourself if, if maybe you have some false ideas? Well, you go to what is true. The only way you can tell something is a lie is by exposing it, measuring it to what is true. And the Bible affirms itself to be the true Word of God. There's no lie that God can't tell lies. And he does not deceive anyone. Isn't that amazing you think about it? You know, we like to sugarcoat things, don't we? We like to kind of, if we've got something really hard to say, maybe to our spouse or to uh, a loved one, maybe a neighbor, we, we often, you know, kind of take the edge off a little bit. You know, we make qualifiers. Well, you know, you know this happened, or, you know, i, I got to tell you that, you know, we, we kind of soften up. We do the same thing with God. We domesticate our God. We make Him palatable to people's taste buds. 
We have nothing to do with that God of wrath where he would annihilate an entire city. Men, women, and children. We domesticate that God. That can't be the God of the Bible. But friend, it is the God of the Bible. It's the God whom we've worshipped today. A God who's holy and righteous. And so Peter says, listen, this is how you're going to get yourselves right Here's how you're going to be able to know what is up and what is down, that you need to grow in the knowledge of God. He writes in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. A quick note, the way he structures this is to distinguish two different people. That is that we are to grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again, ascribing that great title to Jesus Growing in grace. As one grows in the knowledge of God, so he receives grace and peace in greater measure. Do you desire grace today? Do you desire peace today? Does your soul feel that need, that desperate need for peace? Desperate need for grace? Well, friends, it's through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord that one grows in grace. This is how Peter will end the letter He ends the letter in this way, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is it that Peter wanted the the church to be about? What What is it that the apostles wanted us to be doing? What was it that was to occupy our time and our minds, not just on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, but every day throughout the week, every any every moment and every hour? The knowledge of God. And the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God. This knowledge of God is not merely knowing about God. A few random facts about God. There's a way in which you can know God, but not know God. Um, If you don't agree with that, think Judas Iscariot. He knew Jesus. He lived with him. I mean, don't you think you, you really get to know somebody when you live with them, don't you? When you're around someone all the time, you really get to know them. You know, it's not a facade anymore. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to pretend when you're like living with them. Judas lived with Jesus. He, he knew Jesus. He knew when he snored. He knew when he got up. He, he knew the guy. He knew what his favorite food was. He knew him. But he didn't know him. What we, what we mean here is a saving knowledge of God. Uh, James tells us that the demons believe The demons have orthodox theology. Orthodox theology does not save. Just because you have all your ducks in a row about who God is and about the atonement and and you can quote really cool Bible verses and you can lay all that out in a beautiful fashion, brothers and sisters, you could still be condemned eternally. Because it's about trusting, about knowing in an intimate way who God is. Saving knowledge. To have knowledge of God's grace and mercy in Christ. To truly know that God, to truly know God in His character. Not only just know that God is holy, but to to know the implications of that. That a holy God judges people. That a holy God cannot be around sinful people. Growing in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ is central to the Christian faith. That's That's what we're to be doing. That's what we're to be about, is growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. 
As we seek, uh, see in the weeks ahead, we're going to see this. We're going to see it really worked out beautifully. That one of the means of grace God has given us to fight against sin and to grow in holiness is the knowledge of God. As you get to know God more, as you you approach God, what will happen is one of two things. Well, two things will happen. Number one, you will know God more and you will revere Him more. And secondly, you'll know yourself more. The closer you get to God and the more you know God, the more you understand yourself. You understand your desperate need. This is true of all of God's people. The more Moses knew God, the more he knew himself and his need for God. The more Isaiah knew of God and saw God's holiness, the more he recognized his own sinfulness. So as you think this new year, how can I grow in the knowledge of God? Well, it can begin by attending the Lord's Day and hearing God's Word preached. That's what we're doing here. I I don't have um, some theology book here. We just have the Bible out. We're just looking at the Bible. We want to grow in knowledge just through through the Word. And so through the regular preaching of God's Word, through regular Bible study, Bible reading, reading God's Word daily. Yeah, you may not remember everything that you read. Maybe you may not fully understand. But if you have ability to read, well, friend, then read. Use that gift God's given you. Uh, Read a few verses. Try to think about what they mean and how they apply to your life. Uh, read Read a Christian book. Read a good Christian book. Not, not, don't go to the Christian bookstore. Stay away from those places. Bad stuff there. Bad, bad stuff. Bad stuff there. Don't go there. Um, two suggestions. One, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Start there. Short book. 200 pages. Or Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I just encourage you to read those uh, this year. Spend your time. Read, read a chapter a day. Uh, read a chapter a week. You know, Just spend some time getting to know God. Through these, if you want suggestions, come and see me. I'll help you, friend. It is through this means, as we clarify our minds against the wrong ideas, against lies, then we begin to grow in true knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. A few years ago, a woman wrote a novel detailing a life of a new convert, a convert to Christianity. She wrote how this new convert wanted to grow in the knowledge of God and feel really the the full weight of Scripture. So he had his secretary type up all of uh, the New Testament epistles, type them up in individual letters, and made a few modifications, changed the to, and put his name. And as uh, she typed these up and, and would, would uh, put them in an envelope and put them in the mail and mail them to him, and he would take it out of the mailbox and open it as a letter addressed from God to him. And as he began to read these, he was gripped with them. Imagine, for a moment, you go home today. You know, you didn't get the mail yesterday. You go home, you open the mailbox, and there is a letter from God to you. you tremble a bit? What's it going to say? What is it going to say about me? What is it going to say about my life? What, what is it going to reveal? How is it going to encourage me? Surely you would take that letter and just sort of chuck it with the other junk mail and say, I, I'll get to that later. No, God wrote me a letter. I'm going to open that letter. I'm going to read that letter. I'm going to understand that letter. You would read it over and over. You would make sure that everything that you're reading you understood. You didn't want to be confused. I mean, this is from God after all. You may have something really good to say. Something to encourage me by. Something to get me through my day. Oh, you would go over and over and over again. 
You would cherish the letter, I imagine. You, you would take it with you. You would read it at any chance you'd got. And this is what God has done, hasn't he? He has written you letters. He's written you many letters meant to encourage you, and to correct you, to guide you. Friend, why won't you read them? Why won't you spend this year reading these letters from God? Let them roll over in your mind. Seek to grow in them. Grow in the knowledge of God. These are not words on a page. These are words that reveal who God is. Who God is and who you are and your need for Him. Will you read them this new year for His glory? Let's pray. Gracious Father in Heaven, we pray that, that we would grow this new year in the knowledge of God. We pray that You would give us grace, encourage us, help us, I pray. Help us to know You more. Help us to fight against laziness, to fight against apathy. Oh, Father, we pray that we might be certain today that you might encourage those who are weak in their faith, those who are uncertain of their salvation. May we be certain of the truth today. Be certain that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, a God who has given us your only Son, that we might have life everlasting. We pray this for your glory and our eternal good in Christ's name. Amen.